we were having some guitar stand issues. And uh, you don't want to have guitar stand issues when you're putting your guitar down, because that means gravity always wins. You know what I'm saying? So do not want to go there. But uh, thank you again, Josiah and everybody uh, for, uh, for leading us musically today. And uh, I do love that, that hymn, Great Is Thy Faithfulness. So personally, it brings me back. If you've been with us for a while, you may have heard this before. But uh, when Janet and I got married, uh, Janet walked down to Great Is Thy Faithfulness. So that was kind of that moment. So I kind of just think back to that moment where I'm standing there. I'm like, Lord, thank you that I've tricked her into marrying me. <laughs> I remember, you know, kind of pulled the fast one. <laughs> Phew, too late now, huh? No, sorry. Okay, anyway, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Um, but, um, yeah, we, uh, we've been thinking a lot lately also just about um, kind of the way, you know, our, our, as human beings, you know, the way we live before God, the way we long to trust Him, the way we encounter difficulties. I think a lot of times, if you're like me, you realize that, you know, our expectations are easily derailed. And even, even during simple times, at simple moments, for example, a, a shopping excursion. So recently, uh, I went with Janet to, to this place called Ikea. So you're already laughing, like, oh man, you're crazy, you did that. We, we did that, yeah. We went to Ikea, had to take something back to customer service, and so we, then they were very helpful. So we, had, we needed something replaced that we just bought, right? So we go back to customer service, and, and they, you know, kind of say, sure, come back, we'll get the parts for you. And, you know, and this is really smart. Just go ahead and go shopping and come back. It's like, yeah, you're geniuses, right? Of course. Like, go through the showroom yet again, and we'll have your parts ready for you in 20 minutes or so. So then I'm, you know, we're, we're kind of walking around through the showroom, and, uh, and then I get the text, like, hey, come back. Your, your, your part's here. I'm like, okay, I'm going to go back. So Jan, see you later. I'll, you know, and I'm trying to find my way back. I am telling you, I'm, you know, what, where am I? So then, so then I'm like, well, thankfully they have really good signs. Yeah. So this is the sign they gave me for getting back. All right. That, that's the map that they have posted. Now you will notice you have numbers and you have a straight line. All the numbers represent the different departments. However, if you've been there before, you understand that the floor plan does not look anything like this. No, the floor plan for Ikea looks like that. <laughs> so what is it? It is actually, it, it's a conspiracy. I'm convinced it's a conspiracy. They want you to be like, where, where am I supposed? And, and you're basically walking through a living catalog there to just try to get back to customer service. All right, so eventually, it probably took me 20-something minutes to just get out of the maze, um, and I got back. But... But again, you know, what did I expect? Well, maybe I just expected a clear map, you know? Is that too much to expect? I don't know. But, you know, in the modern world right now, we have all kinds of expectations, don't we? All kinds of expectations. There's a historian, his name's Daniel Borstein, and he suggests that Americans suffer from all too extravagant expectations. He actually uh, has a book that he wrote, The Image, and he makes this observation about Americans. He says this, we expect anything and everything. We expect the contradictory and the impossible. We expect compact cars, which are spacious, luxurious cars, which are economical. We expect to be rich and charitable, powerful and merciful, active and reflective, kind and competitive. We expect to eat and stay thin to be constantly on the move and ever more neighborly, to go to a church of our choice and yet feel its guiding power over us, to revere God and to be God. Never have people been more the masters of their own environment, yet never has a people felt more deceived and disappointed, for never has a people expected so much more than the world could offer. So what do we do with our expectations? And the Gospel of Luke brings us face to face with dealing with our expectations before God. And uh, we find that in, in, in Luke chapter 7. 
We'll begin with verse 11. So I encourage you to open in your Bible to Luke chapter 7. You'll find that on page 50 there if you're going to use the Bible in the chair rack in front of you. And what we're going to see is that we really need to learn how to surrender our expectations under Jesus's wise rule. And what we're going to do today as we, as we uh, go through this is we're going to enjoy each section of the narrative and then we're going to summarize what we've seen in, in a principle for our lives. So uh, if you've already reached Luke 7 verse 11, would you stand and follow along as I read? So I'm grateful for, uh, for the time that uh, Eric took us through with, with the centurion's slave and, and the fact that we were able to see how Jesus faithfully demonstrated his might and his power. The centurion actually trusted Jesus more than the, the very, you know, people of God, the, the Israelites. And, and so um, Jesus remarks, you know, I haven't found faith like this anywhere. And of course, the, the slave was, was immediately healed without Jesus even getting near them physically. And so the, the slave was found in good health, and then we find Jesus going on to another city. And so in verse 11, soon afterwards, he, Jesus, went to a city called Nain, and his disciples were going along with him, accompanied by a large crowd. Now as he approached the gate of the city, a dead man was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a sizable crowd from the city was with her. When the Lord saw her, he felt compassion for her and said to her, do not weep. And he came up and touched the coffin and the bearers came to a halt. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. The dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him back to his mother. Fear gripped them all and they began glorifying God saying, a great prophet has, been, has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. This report concerning him went out over all Judea and all the surrounding district. Let's pray. Lord, we, we ask that you would use this passage and, and, and what we talk about today to grace us with a deeper understanding of you, your person, your work, what you're doing, the way in which you are opening up unveiling and inaugurating your kingdom. We ask that we would be in tune with you even in this moment as your people and that we would leave here different than the way we came. And so we pray that you'd be glorified in your work in us. We ask this in the name of Jesus, the risen King. Amen. Go ahead and take your seats. So again, we're going to see that we need to surrender our expectations to Jesus' wise rule. And we find here in, in verses 11 through 17 that he's traveling to a place called Nain. This is a kind of a town off the beaten path. It's not highly popular. It's not a major trade route or anything else. And yet there he is. And certainly it's large enough to have a, a, a gate where people would congregate or gather, usually to deal with court issues, uh, business transactions, those kinds of things. And as he arrives, there's a procession. And... Uh, here, as, as Luke tells us that this, this procession is happening, there's two things that are very noticeable. One, the death, the dead person in this open casket that would be carried by, by the, those in the procession is a young man. He's not old. Uh, and secondly, he's being grieved by his mother, who is in fact a widow. And so that puts her in a really precarious place. Uh, that, that, that means that that she does not have the means and the wherewithal to probably provide a living for herself. Right, right there, being a widow and then having her only son taken will mean that she's going to be destitute. And so Jesus sees this. And it's very fascinating because in verse 13, some, something happens here. Number one is this. Luke refers to Jesus as the Lord. This is the first time that's happened in this gospel. And notice what happens. The Lord saw her. The Lord, the ruler of all, the king of kings, the majestic one. The Lord saw her and what? He felt compassion for her. 
Isn't that beautiful? First time Jesus is referred to as Lord, and the very next thing we find out about him is he's compassionate. This might remind us of something else in the book of Exodus. When Moses says, Lord, show me your glory. And what does God do? He passes before him. Now he says, you wouldn't survive if you actually saw my glory. He puts him in the cleft of the rock and he says, the Lord, interestingly enough, the Lord God, he's describing himself. First term he uses, compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth. That's our God. So here when, when Luke brings this forward and uses the term Lord for the first time, he also immediately describes him as compassionate. And he speaks to her. Jesus talks to her and says, do not weep. And, and there's this sense where you're kind of going, well, why wouldn't she weep? Like, look, look at the situation she's in. Who, who wouldn't weep? She's going to be destitute. Not to mention she loves her son and she deeply misses him. Not to mention she's a widow and she's alone. Like, there's a lot of things to weep about. But, but you, you see here, Jesus enters right in. You know, we're, we're told in Psalm 68 that this messianic one is going to be the protector of widows. Prophetically, that's spoken of in Psalm 68. And here Jesus is carrying that out because he, he goes right in. Uh, he doesn't wait for her to ask him anything. Um, I, I love how we find here um, what Martin Luther the reformer, and when he comments on this section, he talks about how this is a, an unsolicited sympathy. She doesn't ask him anything. She's not demonstrating faith of any kind. This is just Jesus' grace. And Luther says this, the general rule that applies to all the merciful deeds of God, that they all overtake us without merits, even before we seek them. And thus you have here an example, not of faith, but of the pure grace and loving kindness of God. It's stunning. We also see from Jesus here this willingness to enter into suffering. And I think we need to learn from that. Because I think we can be kind of, eh, I don't know if I want to go there. It's hard. Maybe you've been in situations like that before. Maybe someone's going through a deep loss and you're in proximity and you might be able to, maybe you can't do anything about it, but you can be there. And maybe they're just breaking down in tears and that makes you uncomfortable. I've seen, I've seen grown large men that, that, you know, at first meeting them, I was scared of them. And I've seen them buckled over in pain, agony, tears, and sadness, weeping wholeheartedly. And at that time, I'm going, Lord, help me to be here. This feels awkward. Grace me, Lord, to be here with them now. And I think we learn this from Jesus. Let's enter into the mess. Let's be a part of one another's lives when it's hard. Jesus cares. And, and Jesus responds to people who are suffering in this way consistently throughout all of the gospel accounts, especially here. And then what does Jesus do? He does something unspeakable. He touches the coffin. You're not supposed to do that. Why? Now you're ceremonially unclean. You don't touch the coffin. Yeah, Jesus does. And not only is Jesus not defiled by touching the coffin, but instead in that moment, he demonstrates his grace and his power by not being contaminated, but in fact, reversing the entire situation. He simply speaks. And he says very simple words. Young man, I say to you, arise. And he does. We don't have recorded here what the young man said. <laughs> I don't know what he would say. I think with most of the resurrection accounts, maybe all, we, we don't really have there's, there's other places where Jesus raised the dead. There's other people that are raised from the dead. We, you know, Lazarus, we, we don't you know what they say. It doesn't matter. The point is, he raised them with a word. 
demonstrates, again, his power over all things and also shows that he's here to reverse the curse. Sin has brought about death. Jesus came to conquer both, and he shows us here that he has the power and authority to do that. Praise God. It's as if here Luke puts this in chapter 7 to show us, because he's been talking about the good news, the good news of the kingdom, the good news of the kingdom. Now he's showing us how good is this good news. It's so good that death itself doesn't win. It's so good that Jesus brings life. I love how Jesus gives him back to his mother. Again, his compassion for this widow. He literally raises her son and then just, here, you have your son again. Tears of mourning can change into tears of joy. But you'll notice the response here in verse 16. Fear gripped them all. Well, yeah. This fear is the fear of awe. I mean, it would. I mean, how, how do you explain that? I, I don't know. And notice they begin glorifying God. Now, the crowd doesn't quite get everything. Notice they say, a great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. Well, if they got that, that God has visited his people, yeah, that's Jesus. <laughs> and maybe you're here today and you're going, yeah, I'm not so certain that Jesus is God. Well, please understand that throughout the gospel accounts, Jesus says something very, very clearly. I am God. It's not, it's not a mystery. He's not subtle about it. He will use the phrase, I am, referring to himself, which those who would hear him say that are going to think back to Exodus chapter 3 when Yahweh, God, is talking to Moses. And when Moses asks, who should I say sent me to the people of Israel? And he says, tell them the I am sent you. God said, that's my covenant name. To be, um, to be known by this for all time. And now Jesus takes that term and refers to himself. And, and maybe you're thinking, yeah, well, maybe he was just saying, you know, I am hungry or I am this. No, Jesus said, would refer to the Old Testament patriarchs and then refer to himself as the, that I am. Matter of fact, he was so clear about it that the people who were there that day and heard him, they got it very clearly because they wanted to stone him. They would not have wanted to stone him if he said, I am hungry. <laughs> but he asked them, why do you want to stone me? And they say to him, because you are making yourself to be equal with God. And Jesus did not go, oh, whoa, I wasn't trying to say that. No, he didn't do that. He's like, deal with it. Yeah. And the only reason Jesus was saying that is because he was being truthful. He is God. So again, if you're, if you're wrestling with that today, we're glad you're here. Please talk to us more about that. But look at what the passages in the New Testament tell us. These historical documents don't beat around the bush on that issue. They're very clear. So we, we, we realize that you know, there are expectations. And in this situation, Jesus actually overwhelms everyone's expectations who's there. But, but as I've mentioned earlier, we must surrender our expectations to Jesus' wise rule. And why do we have to do that? Well, we must surrender our expectations because Jesus has come to conquer death, not to adorn our life. So Jesus has come to conquer death, not to adorn our life. That's why he came. And so as much as people there are kind of caught up in the here and now and what's going to happen to this widow and everything else, Jesus comes through and blasts through every expectation that they had and says, I haven't just come to make this life, you know, a little bit easier or, 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 or to kind of add some, some good additives uh, to your life in the same way that, uh, 
You know, you might add something as a garnish to a meal. No, I've actually come to redefine what life is. I've come to conquer sin and death. I've come to reverse the curse. He's doing more than anyone expects. And we need to rest in that too. You know, our, our church family, we've recently experienced over the past months, but even, even beyond that, some, some beloved brothers and sisters have gone home to be with the Lord. It's hard. It's hard. Um, I'm grateful that our church family, we've got the full spectrum, right? We've got a kids minute with a bunch of kids down here in front, and then we've got senior saints on the other side of that. But is, not, is it not a beautiful thing to recognize that Jesus has come to conquer death? And he has. And I think when we see that, we start to frame life and, 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 and our place in, in what God's called us to do in a much clearer way. So, this miracle, as we see at the end, it spreads in verse 17. Over all Judea and all the surrounding district, word just catches like wildfire. And there's someone else who hears about this astounding miracle in Nain. And he's far away on, on the edge of the Dead Sea. He's actually in, in jail. And his name's John the Baptist. And you might recall that earlier in chapter 3 of this very same gospel account, he had confronted Herod because Herod, the ruler, decided to marry his sister-in-law, Herodias. And John says, Herod, you can't do that. That's twisted. That's wrong. And so because of that, Herod locked him up in prison. And so when, when, when John hears this news of the dead son of the widow raised in Nain, he has a different reaction. Look at what it said in, says in verse 18. The disciples of John reported to him about all these things. Summoning two of his disciples, John sent them to the Lord saying, Are you the expected one or do we look for someone else? When the men came to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you to ask, Are you the expected one or are we to look for someone else? At that very time, he cured many people of diseases and afflictions and evil spirits. And he gave sight to many who were blind. And he answered and said to them, Go and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed. And the deaf hear. The dead are raised up. And the poor have the gospel preached to them. Blessed is he who does not take offense at me. It's a fascinating exchange, isn't it? So John hears this news of the resurrection of the widow's son. And, and, and he's going, oh, I'm in prison. And Jesus, I prophesied all these things about you. I, I talked about how you were going to come and you were going to bring the spirit. I talked about how, yes, you were going to bring good news. I, I, but I also talked about how your winnowing fork was ready to just... Take out corruption. And, and, and I, I talked about how Rome, you were going to overtake Rome and throw them out. And you were going to bring a new era of a new kingdom. And our oppressors were going to be dispelled. And, and we were going to be living and walking in this new kingdom of freedom. And now it's me. I'm your prophet and I'm in jail. John, John is wrestling with doubt. And the truth is, we, we all wrestle with doubt, don't we? You know, we have doubts about what's going to happen in the future, about our, our opportunities or, or, or what we're capable of doing, or we have doubts about relationships or health, or sometimes we have doubts about the meaning of life or our purpose in it. Sometimes we even wrestle with doubts about God. You know, there are times that we wonder things like, like God, if you're really there, Lord, why, why does it seem like my prayers are just bouncing off the ceiling? Or, or God, I, I know you're there, but I feel alone right now. And sometimes there's these flashes of thought that can kind of unexpectedly kind of occur to us, and it seems to even undermine the things that we believe about God. 
You know, sometimes salvation itself, we can look at it and go, that just seems like, like a really nice, naive thought. You know, we can be tempted to doubt the scriptures or, or if Jesus really did rise from the dead. We can, we can, we can uh, even doubt ourselves about whether we're ever going to experience the glories of eternal life. And so we kind of think, well, where do these doubts come from? You know, how does that, how do these doubts assail us? And, and sometimes they come from the devil. You know, he'll, he'll tempt us not to believe God or to believe his word. Sometimes they come from, from us when we're just tired or we're suffering some kind of affliction. So sometimes those doubts hit us when we're grieving for someone that we love. Maybe they're suffering. Maybe, maybe they've died and we miss them. Sometimes they come when we're under spiritual attack or, or when we've given in to, to destructive patterns of sin and we're not thinking clearly about, about who God is and his call on our life and, and the world he's made. Sometimes these doubts come when we feel disappointed in God. You know, we, we thought, we, we knew what God was going to do for us in a situation. We had an expectation of what maybe it's, uh, outcome to prayer would be or what salvation is going to be like or, or when, we, when God doesn't give us physical healing that we had asked for or the financial prosperity that we had sought or, or when we don't get the family situation that we prayed for. We're tempted to doubt that he really is who he says he is. For whatever the reason is, we wrestle with doubt. And, and John the Baptist is, is having his in these moments. And that might seem surprising because you're going, well, wait a minute, he was the man sent from God. He prophesied about Jesus from his womb. He was anticipating the coming of Messiah. He was there when he baptized Jesus. He heard the voice from heaven. He saw the spirit descend like a dove. How could he possibly doubt? Well, brothers and sisters, do you realize that as a new covenant believer, when you received Christ, you have the Holy Spirit himself dwelling inside of you? Wow. Yet do you wrestle with doubt? Yes. If we're honest, yeah, we do. But let, again, let's put ourselves in John's place. He is, he's languishing away in this prison. By the way, it wasn't like, you know, the Contra Costa County prisons where prisoners had rights or something like that. No, none, that was unheard of in the first century. He was literally thrown into a cell. And from what we know archaeologically, this would have been on the edge of the Dead Sea. The climate there is brutal. Essentially on the edge of the wilderness. And so there he is languishing in this cell and he's getting these reports and he's increasingly perplexed because what is happening in Jesus' ministry is not going exactly the way he thought it would. Again, the miracles fit well with John's prophecy and the things that he talked about when he was baptizing people in the Jordan. But part of his prophecy was judgment was coming. Part of his prophecy was that Jesus was going to burn the chaff with unquenchable fire. And yet, the Romans are still in firm control of things. Politically, things are not going the way he thought they should. And not only that, but all the kind of underlings of Rome... Herod, Herodias, they're just living there in the palace in comfort. And not only that, there's the religious establishment and they're just as arrogant as ever. They're just self-righteous and comfortable and, and they're, they're just manipulating people and using their religious position to feed themselves in grandeur and prominence and even financially. And John's sitting in prison. And as far as he could tell, he wasn't getting any help from Jesus at all. And so all of these developments caused John to just ask this question. Are you the one who's come? Or should we look for another? You know what? That's a good question for us to ask too, isn't it? Is Jesus the one who's come? Or should we look for another? What do we learn from this? Well, we learned that 
we need to surrender our expectations because Jesus has come to establish his kingdom, not to enhance ours. And Jesus' response to John is telling, isn't it? So first he shows the, those sent by John who he really is. He goes, okay, you, you want an answer? Am I the expected one? Should you look for another? Let's just see what's going on here. And so he heals and cures He's already done the, the raising of the dead. All these different things are messianic promises that Jesus fulfills. And then he refers back to Isaiah 61 yet again that he preached earlier and said, look, the, the poor, is have, they're having the gospel preached to them. So Jesus responds to John by saying, this is who I am. And then he shows him, this is what I'm doing. By the way, same answer that we need, right? Is he the expected one? Should we go elsewhere? Well, let's look at who Jesus is and what he does. Well, see, the answer is, he's the one. No question about it. But then Jesus goes on to say this. Blessed is he. Sounds like the Beatitudes, doesn't it? Yeah. How rich and full is the life of the one who does not take offense at me. Um, the word offense, it's, it's, comes from the, the Greek root scandalon, scandal would be the idea. In other words, it's to cause someone to experience anger or shock because of what's been said or done. It can have, it can have the idea of to be bitter against or to be stung in the heart. And Jesus is saying to John, how rich and full is the life of the one who is not bitter of heart towards me, who, who, who is not caused to experience scandal because of me, because again, John, I am establishing my kingdom. And so that's the message that's taken back to John. You notice Jesus doesn't say to John, oh, John, you know what? You're right. I should get you out of prison. Sorry, man, my bad. Doesn't say that. Doesn't promise that to John. He doesn't say to John, John, oh, you're right. You know what? Rome is still in charge. I've got to deal with this political situation. Nope. The political situation, it was just as horribly bad then as it was the day Jesus was born. Because that wasn't the point. No, he's establishing his kingdom. And Jesus will say, my kingdom is not of this world. And so we need to understand that too. We need to surrender our expectations because Jesus came to establish his kingdom, not enhance ours. And I'm not sure how that translates into, into each of our lives, but we need to consider that. Lord, in what ways am I going, wait, this isn't happening. I've got to make this happen. Or Jesus, why aren't you doing this? It's hard. It's painful, especially with personal issues, isn't it? We have these expectations. They didn't happen the way we wanted them to. Physically, we're, we're just, it, it's challenging right now. Maybe we look at the world around us. We're like, why does the world have to fall apart? You know why? Because God is bringing a new world. He's showing us that this one is not our home. We are so easily caught up with lesser things and lesser kingdoms. And yes, brothers and sisters, the United States of America is a lesser kingdom. We need to stewardship our citizenship here well, but this is not our home. We need to enact our gospel beliefs in a way that's winsome and truthful in the public sphere, yes. But our hope does not rest on who's president at any given time, and nor do we proclaim false messiahship on anybody. Jesus is the expectant one. We don't need to seek another. And we need to surrender our expectations because Jesus has come to establish his kingdom, not to enhance ours. So John's messengers leave, and the crowds have heard this exchange. 
And it's possible they get the impression that somehow John's ministry now is less than what people previously thought of him, or that somehow maybe there's a rift between Jesus and John. And so Jesus explains, and we find this in verse 24 and following. When the messengers of John had left, he began to speak to the crowds about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? But what did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Those who are splendidly clothed and live in luxury are found in royal palaces. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I say to you, and one who is more than a prophet, this is the one about whom it is written, behold, I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. I say to you, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John. Yet he who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. When all the people and the tax collectors heard this, they acknowledged God's justice, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected God's purpose for themselves, not having been baptized by John. So the messengers leave. Jesus addresses these questions to onlookers. Again, they're going to be thinking, well, wait a minute. They're, you know, Jesus just kind of like dealt with John. I don't know. Maybe John's ministry wasn't that. Or maybe there's a rift between them or something else. And Jesus says, no, not at all. And he asks a question threefold, right? What did you go out to see? What did you go out to see? What did you go out to see? And each time, he, the first two, he gives kind of th things that are absurd. Did you go to see a, a reed blowing in the wind? As if John the Baptist was this kind of like wishy-washy person that you could, wouldn't take a stand on something. Well, hello, the guy is in prison right now because he would not back down. All right? He, like, he lived out the Tom Petty song before Tom Petty wrote it. Okay? I mean, he was like, I won't back down. That was him. So he's not the reed blowing in the wind, for sure. Okay, and then well, did you go out to see, you know, this splendidly clothed one in, in luxury? You know, no. What did he wear? I mean, the guy, <laughs> he was dressed in, in, in camel, you know, skin. Not the fashion of the day, trust me. There wasn't like a Gucci camel skin thing going down. No. No, he was not dressed in fine things at all. No. But what did you got to see? And the, the third one is, yes, this is exactly what they wanted to see. A prophet. A great prophet. But then Jesus goes, he's not just a prophet. So you, you heard this exchange between me and the, the men that John sent to get a message? Look, John, even with his wrestlings, even with his questions, he is the greatest of all prophets. The, of anyone born of a woman, no one's greater than him. He, he's, the, he's the promised one that would come to prepare the way of the Lord. He fulfilled those prophecies. And if, if anyone's been born of a woman, by the way, that's everyone. Newsflash, okay, that's, what, that's how that works. So yes, anyone born of a woman, no one's greater than John. But then Jesus says something fascinating. Look at the end of verse 28. Yet he who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. What's he talking about? You just went through, no one's greater than John now. Someone is, like, what is, how does this work? And he's, he's really describing how John is this, the, the, the greatest who's been born of a woman from that era. And yet, now that the kingdom has come, now the gospel is being proclaimed. Now that people can be born again, brought into relationship with Christ, united to Christ, that the Spirit of God will indwell them as new covenant believers. Guess what? The least in this new kingdom Jesus is ushering in is greater than John. Wow. Amazing. Because what does Jesus do here? He shows us that, that uh, greatness is this that we all look at. And Jesus is going, yeah, you, you think that's greatness? Watch this. Whoop, turns it upside down. I love how he does that. You know, in other sections, he'll take, he, you guys really want to learn something? He brings, he brings a child. Here's a child. You want to be great? Learn from the child. And they're going, what? You know, because they didn't have that same kind of fondness for kids that our culture has, which I'm glad we've got that. But in the first century, kids were just like, yeah, it's a kid. You know, they weren't, they weren't interesting yet. They weren't useful yet, sadly. And so Jesus turns things upside down. Or when Jesus, again, as we've seen earlier in this gospel, he'll use paradox 
to teach us. So happy are those who mourn. Huh? Yeah. Rich, full, blessed is the life of the one who mourns over their sin. And so here he's, he's saying greatness. You want to see greatness? Well, I'm flipping it upside down. And then he goes into the, the responses. You know, the tax collectors heard this. They were hated by, by, um, by the Jews because they were traitors. They were actually working for Rome. They were employees of this political uh, and, and geopolitical power that was oppressing them. And, and these were Jewish people who said, you know what, I kind of want money. I know Rome's ruling us, but I want money. I'm just going to work for Rome. And so in some ways, they, they kind of got a, you, you get a little, little area. Like, okay, well, you want to be a tax collector? Rome did that because they were smart. You already know the language. You know the culture. We don't have to train you in that. So you collect this much for Rome. Let's say it's this much for Rome. Whatever you collect above that, you keep. Well, how much am I allowed to collect? You're the tax collector. Rome's like, we don't care. You can imagine the abuses. And whatever you can imagine, they were probably worse. So these were hated. And yet, here, here, here these hated people, tax collectors hear this about John's baptism. They go, oh, wow. Wow. Thank you, Lord. Why? Because John preached a baptism of repentance. By the way, what did Jesus preach? Repent for the kingdom of God's at hand. He said the same thing. They, again, they're not on different pages. You can't, you know, so he's, he's you, you don't want to, the interaction they had does not put them in different places. No, they're on the same page preaching the same message. And yet, these people hear, hearing that, listening, they're going, you know, task, task collectors are going, thank you, God. <sighs> I know I did this evil and I don't want to be that way anymore. We're going to find out more about other things in this area of tax collecting at a different time. But, but the point here is there's hope. They acknowledge ju God's justice. Now, the religious, though, on the other hand, the Pharisees and the lawyers, lawyers would be experts at the law, they rejected God's purpose. And so why? They were arrogant. They were proud. I don't, we don't need that. So this tax collector, of course he needs that. That guy is evil. He's a sinner. Implication, I'm not a sinner. I'm a religious person. Why would I be a sinner? And because of that, I can perform well, religiously and morally, and I can have God accept me because of that. And so when Jesus is describing John, his ministry, his greatness, and it says, but the greatest, though, is the least in the kingdom of heaven, he teaches us something. And, and we find here, that Jesus teaches us we must surrender our expectations because Jesus has come to redefine greatness, not to assure our egos. So again, it's another area of ex expectations, but this time it's the religious expect that they will be accepted because of their own righteousness. And then to realize, wait, no, you won't be because of that. Your ego is not the issue here. And yet... The least in the kingdom of heaven, reversal, they're the greatest. Why? Because they're in me. They've trusted me by faith. And so again, though none is greater than John, the least in the kingdom of God is greater. Because there's, gonna, there's a fulfillment coming of, of, of Christ's kingdom that Jesus will accomplish. And that's going to give a massive difference for those who are under this new covenant in him. So the Pharisees and the lawyers, they're, they're still standing there and they're hearing all this. And, and they're probably kind of rigid in their smugness at this point, right? They're going, you know what? I didn't need John's baptism and I don't need Jesus's message because neither of those things met their expectations at all. And so Jesus confronts them. But he does it in a fascinating way. Jesus now confronts these, these rigid, stubborn, religious people. He, he confronts them with a story um, about, of all things, children. And we find that in verses 31 to 35. Look at what it says. To what then shall I compare the men of this generation? And what are they like? They are like children who sit in the marketplace, call to one another, and they say, we played the flute for you, but you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not weep. 
For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say, he has a demon. The Son of Man comes eating and drinking, and you say, behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is vindicated by all her children. What's Jesus doing here? He's confronting these stubborn religious people by saying to them, you know what? You can't pin this on, well, you're not quite along the lines of my preferences or desires. Because frankly, John and I are so different, he says. John the Baptist and I are so different. And we come to you in completely different ways, but neither one, we're good enough for you. And it kind of comes from what we would call the playground, right? So you can kind of, so if you're thinking of, you know, there's a playground somewhere and kids are playing and they say, okay, let's play wedding. You know, okay, we're going to play wedding. So you're the groom, you're the, you're the bridal party and you're going to be the pastor, da, 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 da. And then three kids off the side go, no, we don't want to play wedding. Wedding's stupid. It's a dumb game. I don't want to play that, you know? Oh, okay, okay. Let's play funeral. We'll play funeral. Okay, so you, because you're kind of grumpy, you can be in the casket over here, you know, and you can be the pastor, and you can be the mourners, and you can, right? And then, and then what happens? They, well, we don't want to play funeral. Well, at that point, I'm sorry, but guess what? The problem is you. Eventually, we realize this, right? We're looking at, oh, the one common element to all these things is me. Huh, you know, bing, right? And so that's what Jesus is doing. He's saying, John the Baptist is not the problem. I'm not the problem. The problem is your stubbornness. And so he ends it by saying, yet wisdom is vindicated by all her, by all her children. In other words, Jesus is saying, my wisdom is on display in the gospel. And those who come to me, those who embrace this good news of the kingdom, they receive forgiveness. They receive reconciliation with the God who made them. Their sins are cast in the deepest parts of the ocean, and they receive eternal life, never to be taken from them. All those reversals, they become participants in that. And ultimately, my wisdom in them is vindicated. Or you can live in the midst of your foolishness, claiming to be superior nitpicking and looking at things and going, well, that's not good enough for me. That's not good enough for me. Well, here's the opposite. Oh, that's not good enough for me. That's not good enough for me. Well, you have met the enemy and it is you. And yet the call remains from Jesus in this moment. Turn to me. Jesus is actually confronting these religious, self-righteous people to bring them to repentance. His compassion is for them as well. He doesn't simply say this, this picture of children playing in the playground in order to just kind of spite them. No, he's trying to help them to see you can turn away from your self-righteousness and you can be saved. And the same is true today. If you're here today and somehow you believe that by being a righteous person, you can commend yourself to God and be accepted by him, you need to realize that's a lie from the pit of hell. That's a religious solution that is not the gospel. The gospel's the opposite of that. The gospel says all of us, uh, like sheep have gone astray, each of us has turned to our own way. But God has caused the transgressions or the, the, the perversity of our lives to be placed on Jesus on the cross. And we can receive his righteousness, not by deeds of righteousness, but by faith by trusting him. And you can do that today. What, what, what do we learn from, from this? We learn that we must surrender our expectations because of Jesus, because Jesus has come to vindicate his wisdom, not to appease our whims. Your preference might be this. Your preference might be that. That's not why Jesus came. No. He came instead to vindicate his wisdom. And thankfully, it will be vindicated. And we'll see that especially on the day of his return.
So we must surrender our expectations to Jesus' wise rule. Why? Because he came to conquer death, not to adorn our life, to establish his kingdom, not to enhance ours, to redefine greatness, not to assure our egos, and to vindicate his wisdom, not to appease our whims. And when we really understand that, we will walk in the freedom of his grace and we'll be a beacon of that grace to those around us. So where are your expectations right now? And what do you need to bring to him and say, Lord, I need to lie these at your feet. I need to surrender these to you because your wise rule is better than my expectations. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that you would help us to, to take in your word today. And we pray that we would, would turn to you and even, even those places where we do wrestle with doubt and we are struggling to even see the different areas of our lives and what's going on. We ask that you cause us to turn to you and that we would surrender those expectations and embrace your wisdom and what you're doing, that we would walk in a way that's in tune with you, freed from the burden, really, and the tyranny of our own expectations into the freedom of the wondrous grace that you give us, the grace that ushers in your kingdom, which is making all things new. We ask this in the name of our risen King, Jesus. Amen. We now come to uh, the portion of our service where we're going to celebrate the Lord's table. And if you open your bulletin, you'll find in there a, a sheet of, of uh, just different prayers and different uh, instructions regarding this. But um, what we're going to do is you'll, you'll come forward and, and grab uh, both elements and then return to your seat. And, um, and as we do so, uh, we're going to be uh, just singing a song to be considered. Just consider the lyrics prayerfully as you come to receive the elements and then go back to your seat and then we'll, we'll partake of them together.